Hey everybody, welcome to About Practice, a show about research and practice and education. I'm Ryan Estriato, one of the co-hosts, and today on the show we have Dr. Kara Jackson, who is a senior associate at Apt Associates. Way back in February, Josh and I were talking about an article Kara wrote called Democratizing the Development of Evidence. The article is about how educators and their communities can work together to collect data and use it in better ways to improve their school systems. Y'all, this article is so good. When Josh and I read it, we just had to invite Kara onto the show to talk more about it. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy this episode of About Practice with Dr. Kara Jackson. Okay, everybody, welcome to About Practice. This is Ryan Estriato, and I am joined today by my co-host, uh, Josh Rosenberg. Josh, how are you? Doing great. Just enjoying being on a chairlift with you. I know. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the, uh, the the new Zoom virtual virtual setting here in a little bit. And I am also, we are also joined today by a very special guest, Senior Associate at Apt Associates, Dr. Kara Jackson. Kara, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you so much for... Uh, for coming on. Okay, so for the listeners, we should start off by saying, because I've never seen this Zoom feature before, we are on what appears to be a virtual, what are these called? A ski lift? I'm from San Diego. We don't have snow. That, that's what this is, right? It's a ski lift. Okay. Um, the, I'm assuming y'all see way more snow than I do. What is your take? Is this like an accurate depiction of what it's actually like to be on a ski lift, that virtual ski lift that we're on? I've never been on a ski lift. Is this the evening? It's like either... It's either the crack of dawn or it's the evening. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, I like I like this. It really, yeah. We need to really interrogate this. Yeah, I see some pretty what appear to be spruce trees, and I agree. At some time, uh, probably the end of the day. Yeah, look, get, given the purple sky, it's a. I don't know a ton about trees and like geography and stuff. Um, if those are spruce trees, where whereabouts in the United States does this put us? Do we know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was hoping Josh and. <laughs> The uh, uh, yeah, the, the Mr. Nature over there. I, I was hoping would know. Yeah. We we don't have a lot to go on, really, right? We have that one. <laughs> we have this one, this one mountain, and there's the only other thing is that we have to go on is a little Zoom sticker, which adds there's, a little. That's right. I don't know, little fun to this background. It's but. a branded, yeah, branded Zoom, Zoom uh, ski lift. Pretty yeah. cool. Maybe b- before we say much more about this, um, just on a numeric scale of maybe like one to 10, like how much better is this than a normal zoom meeting with like one representing not at all better, like exact, like functionally the same. I'm what was the scale? One to 10. Yeah. 10 is like, this is a transformative experience, like a whole new way of meeting. I'm going to say four because I'm kind of neither here nor there on it, but I do like under any other circumstances, um, given like, I think that, you know, the three, I have both a great relationship with Kara and also with you, Josh, but under, I would not be like sitting this close to you, like in my personal space, <laughs> like we're literally like, yeah, we're like really, really close together. And in real life, that just would not, it would, it would not happen. <laughs> what are you thinking, Kara? Scale of one to 10. That sounds about right. I think a, about a four, uh, you know, the, the view is very pretty yeah. and, and it is kind of entertaining. True. True. <laughs> Um, okay, so I want to recap uh, just to get us started here and that, just to set up the episode. And then I think uh, j- just to, to preview this, Kara, I think it'll be great if like, you know, the listeners who, who don't know you yet um, will will be curious about how you arrived in the, the, the position that, that you have. But sort of the, the main point of our conversation today is in the last episode of About Practice, 
uh, Josh and I had a conversation uh, about the article that you wrote, which is um, democratizing the development of evidence. Uh, we are fans of this article, and uh, we went through it once the you know this on this last episode and had so many questions. Um, and so we're really excited to have you here, so that we can just just go deep on this. The whole process, like why you wrote it, um, you know, the, the research that went into it, and sort of what your thoughts and feelings are. So that's going to be just just a little teaser for what's what's right around the corner for us. Um, but for context, tell us about the journey that you that you had that 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 led you to Apt Associates, and then eventually um, writing this this great article, democratizing the development of evidence. Sure. So. Um long and winding career path. I, I started out, actually, my first job was as a federal government employee with the Government Accountability Office. Um, and I left that position to become a teacher in New York City Public Schools. So I did that for a few years and then moved back to D.C., went back to the Government Accountability Office, where I was doing work on No Child Left Behind and schools in need of corrective action and restructuring, particularly, so schools in need of improvement. Um, and then from there, I went to my doctoral program at the University of Maryland um, and continued to study education policy. Coming out of that is when I joined the Strategic Data Project. So that is how I know Ryan. Um, it's a really terrific program that places people from around the country in educational agencies to kind of encourage and facilitate the use of evidence in those agencies to improve educational outcomes. Um, so I did my strategic data project placement was with urban teachers in Baltimore. It's a residency-based teacher preparation program um, now expanded to Dallas-Fort Worth, DC. Um, I think they're in Philadelphia. So they're, they're definitely um, expanding their influence and it's a terrific program. Um, and it was a really wonderful experience. I've also worked for Montgomery County Public Schools in Maryland doing research and evaluation um, and I worked for Bellwether Education Partners. And then while I was at Bellwether, I met somebody at a research conference and uh, specifically a conference that's intended to bring together researchers and practitioners. Um, and he and I stayed in touch and he eventually ended up at App Associates and he reached out to me at some point and was like, hey, we have this position open. So I applied. And that's how I ended up at App. Um, basically just networking with like-minded folks, which was terrific. Um, the article was in progress when I joined App. Um, it was it was like sort of getting into the revision process. Um, so that that's sort of like part of the trajectory, my career trajectory and the uh, role of my article in that, which I think we'll get into that a little bit more. Yeah. Okay. Quick follow-up, if it's okay, Rivera. Um, I'm sort of getting a sense just from your description of this the progenesis of this article, um, that you've crossed some boundaries in your work. So, I mean, at the most simple level, you've taught, and now you're working at ed policy. Um, I'm in teacher education. People who have taught are more common in, in my current field, but I was in an ed psych PhD program where that was not the case. Um, probably as few as one in three or fewer people had taught. Um, uh, this is an article in Educational Researcher, arguably the most read educational research journal. Um, we are also talking a lot about... Um, kind of impacting practice. This, that's the whole focus of this article, too. Do, can you give us a sense of, like, where you... Okay, I, what, I have a selfish question, but I'm, it's, it's about you, too. Can you, like, how do, how do you kind of see where you fit in the educational landscape? And then where do we fit? We're, we're a podcast about practice. And we were recently talking about Capin, the, the um, magazine slash journal, 
Um, and sort of thinking that's like kind of where we're trying to be, that kind of intellectual space at least. But can you tell us where, where you fit and, and tell us where we fit too? That'd be really great because we don't know. <laughs> I think that's a great question. And I think that the like-minded people that I've met throughout my journey often feel like there isn't exactly a home for them, right? Because they kind of have one foot in a research world and one foot in a practice world. And as far back as like right after I graduated from college and I was in my master's program, I said, the thing that I'd really like to do is like be a kindergarten teacher part of the day and be a researcher the other part of the day. And that's still sort of the dream, right? Is that you kind of get to be a little bit of both and, and um, teaching keeps me so grounded in some ways in the reality of what this work is like. And definitely going from the federal policy level to the classroom is jarring um, because there's so many things that are happening at the federal policy level that classroom teachers are not always aware of, even though it's influencing them every day. And the school that I taught in was a school in, in need of improvement. It was a school that was under corrective action, under no child left behind. Um, and I'm not sure that I could have even told you that because, mm. <laughs> you know, it, it would just sort of, I just kind of came to school every day and I taught my lessons and I worked with my students and just getting the job done. Um, and there's a real disconnect sometimes from the federal policy that's influencing um, the things that are going on at that level. So I think my space in this world is to sort of be somebody who has invested their time in this more of the research and the evaluation side of things, but always try to push that lens of like, what is this like for the people on the ground? What is this like for the students, for the teachers, for the families, for the administrators, you know, how, how is this playing out in the real world and not just like in paper and theoretically. So you, you join Apt Associates and then in November, 2021 published this article, democratizing the development of evidence um, and, uh, I guess my first question about this is when was the moment that you knew you had to write this, this, this piece? Yeah, I think I wrote it. I think I really started it about a year before, maybe in October, 2020. Um, and just really a couple of things happened. Um, one is that I read an article, another article, actually another essay in Educational Researcher by Liz Farley Ripple and Henry May and their colleagues, and it's titled Rethinking Connections Between Research and Practice in Education. And I really love the article. My essay started out almost as a direct response to that, as a sort of yes and kind of piece where it just thinking there, there could build on these ideas and, and build out this idea of bringing research and practice together and bringing in being more inclusive about who's part of that process. The other origins of it was listening to Vivian Seng at the William T. Grant Foundation and Jim Colmo's at Edge Consulting Partners who started this whole idea of democratizing evidence, which is all about ensuring that diverse stakeholders and especially those who are most closely situated to the issues have the power and opportunity to shape the production and use of research evidence. Um, they, they have a website about this. Um, they have been presenting at conferences about this concept. And then finally, it's, it's born out of my experiences and the experiences of my colleagues at the Strategic Data Project, people who have worked in state education agencies and in school districts to encourage and facilitate the use of evidence in decision-making. And so really thinking about like, there's lots of researchers who think about this all the time, but I think it's also really important to bring in the perspectives of people in those educational agencies who have 
access to tons and tons of data and also have a little bit more insider knowledge about how decisions get made. Um, and so they can bring this different lens to the process and say, hey, you know, like people, people really want to consider this data. And researchers might say, well, data is not quite the same thing as evidence. You have to collect it systematically. You have to analyze it. You have to have a research question that you're answering. But I do think it's important to listen to the people who are saying, this data is what's really important to us. These, these numbers or these outcomes are the things that we really care about. Um, and so making sure that we're, we're attending to what is what the potential demand for our evidence. You called this uh, this piece a yes and response to some other writing that was that was done uh, before it, and I'm and I'm wondering if you could share more about that. What was the yes and what was the and? So the yes is the idea of connecting research and practice, and that there there's sort of multiple factors that play into whether or not we we do connect research and practice, and to what extent. The and is more about this the perspective of people in the agencies and also people outside the agency, quite honestly, who are part of the like broader education ecosystem. So parents and families and students and people who aren't necessarily, we're not necessarily considering what their concerns are when we're making these decisions about what questions to ask, what data to analyze, what outcomes to look at, um, and what to answer. Um, so one of the things I really like about Montgomery County is that we have a voting student member of the board, um, which is really cool because you get a little bit more of the sort of student perspective and student voice that um, rises to the level of those policy decisions and has a, a seat at the table during important discussions. Um, Kara, different question here. Um, part of what resonated with me about this was fully realizing that our education system is a public one and that what the public wants it to be matters. Um, there's also um, at the very least a messy side to that um so a kind of top-down or even authoritarian kind of leadership structure might not be messy it's something else with a lot of downsides um but i'm wondering if you could um talk through with us what are some of the complications or downsides that come from this important maybe necessary invitation of democratic involvement in deciding what counts as evidence yes so definitely it has become complicated and was like, even as I was writing this, becoming increasingly more complicated to think about what happens when we open up the floodgates and anybody who wants to speak at board meetings can speak. And there's lots of very divergent opinions, right? And so I'm writing this in October 2020 and people are getting increasingly unhappy about COVID and the responses to COVID and um, a lot, you know, today there's a lot of debate about things like critical race theory and whether or not we should be talking about gender identity. And it, it is definitely complicated and messy stuff. And I think it's important to keep in mind that the, the schools are, they're there to serve all students, right? And so just I come from this from this perspective of we need to serve all students. We need all students to know that they feel welcome. And we should probably be especially mindful that that schools have not worked well for all groups of students, right? And there's there's some groups of students in particular who either because they have um, learning difficulties or because of some aspect of their identity, they're having more trouble navigating the school environment. And so, be mindful of what their experiences are and what we need to do to improve to make sure that the schools 
are serving their needs and working well for them as well. So I think the education community has a, an enormous responsibility to empower students to be engaged citizens who can live and work in a multicultural society and that we have an opportunity to model democratic processes by giving students opportunities to provide input into development of evidence. And I hope that we can find ways to navigate the challenges, maybe in part by by focusing on what are the outcomes that you care about? Like, like let's start from that. And then maybe let's try to say, okay, given that we care about these outcomes, what kinds of data would you need to see um, that would you would find compelling? Um, I do think some of it is about like thinking about who the right partners are, um, thinking about whether there might potentially be disingenuous actors kind of getting involved, right? I think that in a lot of districts like mine, so my school district is, it's less than 30% white. I think sometimes we see um, over-representation of certain groups at board meetings and under-representation of other groups at them. So we need to be mindful of that. Um, we need to be mindful that who's responding to the surveys might not be representative of the whole community. And there are lots of different ways that we can try to make sure that our Democratic processes are set up so that we are as inclusive as possible. I know Montgomery County has, for example, had interpreters at their public meetings and things like that. Thanks, Gary. That was super, added a lot of color, I think. And that, that got me thinking by the end of your response about how like democratic processes are not just one simple thing, that there's kind of better or worse processes for inviting democratic involvement. And we just like maybe as a country right now, we need to think about how we can um, invite participation in a way that a, well, a lot, lot of things, A, B, C, D, E. Um, first, I appreciate they said A, recognizes that there are differences, just looking back even in recent history, in terms of who our educational systems are serving best. So not taking a blind eye to that, um, turning a blind eye to that. And then B, trying to work toward consensus somehow. So good democratic processes too. So we just talked about the like the necessary messiness that comes with, with doing, doing things the right way, that is to say... Um, bringing all parties involved, members of the community, into into deciding what evidence to you know to research, what matters to the community. Um, th- those, if it were simple, it'd probably be done already everywhere. So, so that that level of compl- complexity and new problems to solve just they, they comes with it. And I think like um, messy is a really great way to describe it. But one of the things I really love about your article, Kara, is you use a technique. Um, like an organizer that uh, I was unfamiliar with until um, I started using these in at the Strategic Data Project, this idea, uh, which is called a logic model. Um, and I want to, in a moment, I want to ask you to just walk us through the mechanisms illustrated in the logic model. But first, for our listeners who... Uh, who who aren't familiar with with what that is like uh, like me until recently? What is? Can you just talk explain what the whole concept of a logic model is? And, uh, sorry to interrupt, but in our last episode we talked about needing a logic model for logic models, and That's then right. it got really meta. And we'll, we'll probably just have to to oh. sort out this first. Has anybody done first. that? Somebody needs to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That would that would probably be helpful, actually. And sometimes I feel like that's part of the work that I do is thinking about like what what's the logic model for this mm-hmm. type of technical assistance where we give people logic models. Like, why would we do that? What, <laughs> what? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's just a visual representation of how what you are planning to do is expected to achieve desired outcomes. And so, if you're thinking about these different pieces of it, that it starts with, you might start with a problem statement, 
So you have some problem or challenge that you're, you're designing a program to address. And then you have inputs. You have all these resources. And that might include like physical materials, like books. But it could also include intangible contributions like staff time or, or volunteer time that are needed to address this problem. Um, then you have these strategies. There's different program components or key activities that you expect to lead to the outcomes that you're hoping to achieve. So that could include different programs and services, events, products, meetings, all the things that go into producing these um, desired outcomes. And then the outcomes and impacts are the difference that the resources combined with the strategies should produce. So ideally you're not getting the same old results, right? You're trying to improve something. And so you're putting together these strategies and these resources and Hopefully you see an improvement in student achievement is a typical outcome, right? Um, and I would also encourage people to consider students' well-being overall. So we might think about a reading program that works in the sense that students score higher on a test, but if they also grow more anxious or reluctant to read after participa participating in that program, we would probably want to be thinking about the unintended consequences and if there was a program that could you know, also get them to score higher on the test but didn't have those kinds of side effects. Um, that scenario is completely hypothetical and maybe it's unlikely, um, but it's just in general to illustrate that I think that we should be considering how our students experience schooling that could be beneficial as well as how, how teachers experience the program, right? Um, because at the end of the day, you're going to have to like sell this idea to people who are actually implementing it and you want to make sure that it works for them as well. Another really important thing to think about are the assumptions, right? And that could be beliefs about the participants, the staff, the program, how you think the change or improvement could be realized, um, the context for program implementation. I think sometimes you see logic models where people have skipped the assumptions, but I think that's really important for evaluating um, the relevance of, of the research that's being done. Um, because if you think about taking a study from one context and saying whether or not I think this program or practice could work in my context, you're going to want to know what those assumptions were and you're gonna to want to know what the policy context was to see if it's similar to yours or if it's reasonable, reasonably similar. So you think that you could achieve the same result. That's a really good point. So like, so th this on, on the topic of assumptions. Um, so for example, if, you know, you, you wrote, um, you illustrated these ideas in this piece and then let's say I'm a school district and, you know, I read, um, Dr. Jackson's article and, and I'm thinking, Oh, I want to, I want to try this. Um, what the logic, this is what I'm thinking, and you tell me if I've sort of got this right, what the logic model combined with the assumptions does is it gives me a, um, it, it gives me a set of instructions that should work in theory given um, similar kinds of assumptions, right? Maybe that's like the size of the school district or like, you know, how much the financial resources or something like that. Now, if those are different, those assumptions are different then I as a school district leader might say, okay, so we might have to make some adaptations because, um, you know, when Kara studied this, it was under these conditions, we have different conditions and so now we have to sort of change it. Is that the way a school district would use that combination, like the logic model and the assumptions? I would hope so. Yep. Right. I mean, I, I think that if you're if you're being really thoughtful about saying, I think that this research applies to my community and, and schools are school districts are being asked to do this more now under the um, Every Student Succeeds Act because there's these um, ESSA has these evidence tiers and people are supposed to be selecting evidence based practices and 
in that process, there's a, they're meant to be thinking about whether or not um, the context is similar to their context. And I think often when we think about, is it similar to my context, we might go straight to demographic. But I think probably the more essential elements of context are maybe not always demographic or geographic. It might be more about like, what is what what kind of staff are available? Like, what are the qualifications of the staff available? Are there people who are available to do to volunteer their time? Because if there aren't, and your program relies very heavily on volunteer time, that might not be a valid option for right. you, right? And so thinking about it that way, like where where is the match and where is the mismatch, and can you correct for any mismatches that exist? Um, because if you can't, then then it might not be the best program for your content. Uh, Carrie, you wrote in the article that uh, educational education agencies have turned to external partners or developed partnerships through this mode of a research practice partnership. Yeah. Um, we've kind of heard a lot about these in, um, I think, education research broadly, not even educational policy in the last few years. And I'm wondering how... Um, how research practice partnerships fit with what you're advocating regarding how evidence is um, identified, considered to be evidence used um, in this article. Um, in other words, can you help us to understand how your work um, relates to um, the notion of research practice partnerships and scholarship on them? Sure. So I think research practice partnerships are definitely one avenue through which we could democratize the development of evidence. And I think it's a fairly promising one. I think some of the things that are particularly promising about research practice partnerships is that they, you know, they can be longer term. Um, they can be people who are a little bit independent. Um, they have a little bit of healthy distance from the people who are actually implementing the program and might be particularly invested in seeing a particular policy or, or intervention succeed. Um, and the flip side of that is that they have to navigate the challenge of being a little bit less in the loop than somebody who's inside the agency, right? Um, mm. They might be more likely to miss out on informal hallway conversations or discussions in general meetings and so forth. And those informal interactions can really shape the decision-making process. So when I wrote the article, I'm trying to balance this thing saying, like, you could, you could do research practice partnerships. And I, you know, encourage people to pursue that if that's the avenue they want to pursue, and they could also develop the research capacity internally. Certainly, the, the strategic data project was kind of founded on that premise that building an agency's internal capacity to conduct rigorous data analysis is critical to producing and sustaining evidence-driven decisions. Um, and, and they have benefits there in terms of being a little bit more looped in. At the end of the day, though, I actually think that either approach could work, and it's just important to be aware of the relative strengths and challenges. And I also think they're probably more alike than different in the sense that um, the the people who are within the agency are still going to encounter silos, right? I, I think this is a fairly common phenomenon in educational agencies where like the curriculum people are not always talking to the evaluation people or talking to the school improvement people, right? So you might have people who are just in very different offices and that's still something you have to navigate whether you're inside the agency or you're a research practice partnership outside the agency. And then the benefit of um, research practice partnerships being a little bit less beholden to their colleagues who are in invested in the program, um, they still have to trade carefully because the education agency might decide to stop collaborating with them or stop 
their data sharing agreement. So um, sort of the there there's probably more in common than than different between those two different approaches. And at the end of the day, you just kind of have to um, hope that there is some commitment from educational leadership around being transparent in data collection and analysis and reporting. Um, because whatever approach you're using, they will benefit from that. So let's say um, that somebody who is not working in an education agency, so you're not working in a, a district, um, certainly not working at the state level, and you want to see more of what um, what your work in this article calls for. Um, are there any ways, ways you can do that? So, I mean, uh, I guess this matters differently if you are someone who's like, okay, this is becoming transparently self-serving here, but if you're an educational <laughs> researcher, if you're, if, if you're an educational researcher, um, what, what could you do? But if you're also somebody who um, maybe just wants to get involved and um, maybe uh, isn't sure whether there's anything you can do from the outside. Is that a strange question? Not at all. So you're asking like, how can you try to encourage um, maybe a more inclusive involvement in the in the process. Thanks for um, distilling something clear out of that. Yeah, that's that's exactly the, the core of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's a challenge that a lot of us face. I think I've, I've talked to folks who feel like sometimes it's just not, the, the funding isn't there. And I mean, if you look at the logic model in the article, like there's a lot of, I'm, I'm suggesting a lot of strategies and activities that require people's time. And when you require people's time, ideally you are paying them for that time. Um, you know, we, I think it would be a little risky to, to hope that people are willing to volunteer their time to do this kind of thing and, and probably operates more smoothly if we can build it into the actual processes. So I think that's the first challenge is sort of like funding that supports this kind of work. Um, I do think getting people involved as early in the process as possible to ensure that there is sufficient demand for the answers that you're that, for the, the questions and the answers, right? Um, are you looking at the outcomes that people care about? Are people willing and able to act on the answers that you find? Because I think when I think about this, this issue of like, okay, it's going to require a lot of people's time. So we need to be sort of strategic about when we ask people to engage in this time intensive process. Um, so making sure that we are asking questions that are m most relevant and useful. And the way I think about relevant and useful is, you know, is anybody going to act on it, right? I mean, because you could ask lots of questions. We could, we could do lots of different studies of different things. And if the findings are such that people are just going to brush it under the rug or ignore them, then that's probably not the most useful question to ask which is unfortunate because sometimes they're very important questions and they're like, that's just not, just not actionable in this context for whatever reason. Um, so I definitely think that like having leadership on board was saying like, okay, if you, if you find X, we're going to do Y. And if you find Z, we're going to do this thing instead, you know, like we're, um, you can ask them to sort of like commit to a path of action up front, which is one strategy that um, came up in, some of the things that I read in preparing to write this article. And I think that it's a really neat idea. I'm not sure how many people are actually doing it, but I think it would be um, really helpful to sort of increase tra transparency and accountability for using the results. Yeah, I like that idea of that kind of potential for feedback loops yes. that that would maybe lead to. I really like your question, Josh, because I, I have a 
I have the same question, but maybe like all the way to the other side on the practitioner side. And it's sparked by something that you said earlier, Kara, that really got my attention because it felt so real to me being somebody who is, you know, is a as a practitioner, I've been to board meetings and, you know, and, and looked at this as the idea that like we, we, you called it opening the floodgates, which I think, I think what you meant there is like, um, the reality of democratizing, um, the topics that we research and how we do it, uh, requires that we have a good, we sort of like educational leadership have a good read on what the community is feeling. And to get there, um, there has to be a lot of listening to a lot of ideas and opinions, very diverse or points of view, conflicting ones, you know, a lot of tensions to resolve. And so my version of Josh's question is, if a practitioner was like, okay, I read this, I understand it. Um, and I know what I you know, I, I know I want to take a step towards a system that is more inclusive of the community, but can't quite imagine what it would be like to, number one, gather all of that information from the community, and then two, resolve. There still is some decision about, like, what it is that you study, right? And, and it doesn't seem... Um, too far off for me to assume that what happens when you engage a process like this is there, there are some folks who feel like, well, that, but that's not what I wanted to study, even though others did. So question is, what does it look like when it, when it works, when it's optimized for that, for like re really getting a read on what the community needs and wants in terms of process? What does it look like? Yeah. Or, or just even, I mean, I'm thinking from a practitioner's point of view, even introducing the idea that our process is the solution here might, I don't think I'm overstepping when I say that might be a new idea because very often it's like you have the board meetings, everybody has their say, and then you kind of like, you just sort of walk away because it's very overwhelming to sort of figure, and what's missing sometimes is the process, I think. So talk about that. Like, how does that, how does that work or how should it work? Yeah, so there were a couple of things that came across when I was writing this article um, that I think sort of spoke to this a little bit more. I know John Collins at Brown is doing a lot of research on sort of um, deliberative democracy and what that process can look like. Um, so school board meetings where people actually, you know, they get time to speak, but they also get some kind of response from the leadership. And then um, Marguerite Rosa wrote about participatory budgeting um, so that this idea that you're sort of building in time for discussion and engagement, and it's not just somebody presenting their ideas and then, you know, let's move on. Um, I, I definitely think that the current political environment is a challenging one to navigate and that you could run into special interest groups with money and megaphones that are sort of hijacking the conversation. So um, there is, I think, a need to attend to who's getting airtime, which constituents do they represent, whether certain stories are being drowned out and others are, are getting maybe potentially more than their fair share of the attention and energy. Um, but I do think, again, you know, sort of navigating that by focusing on, so what is, what is the outcome that you're interested in? Kind of working from the perspective of like, we, we have some similar goals that we want to achieve. And then the other thing that I think um, that was helpful that I came across was this public accountability framework that Pat and Paul Koff created um, that 
talked about the extent to which the actions benefit the public as opposed to being used for private gain. So just sort of being mindful of who benefits and whether or not that proposed benefit is broadly beneficial to all students or is it about like helping certain students and not others. Um, those kinds of ways of sort of weighing what you're hearing and saying like, is, is, is this a concern that is specific to this one person at this one time? And, and that's, I mean, that could be a very legitimate concern, right? But it also might be that you say like, okay, this is a concern that should be going to somebody's teacher, somebody's principal, somebody's like, what, at what level should this concern be addressed? And then there may be other concerns where you're like, well, this, this could be a broader district concern about how we include parents in IEP meetings, for example, or something that's just sort of seemed to be a broader issue, um, a broader and bigger issue that might need more attention from the district or from education leadership. Um, Kara, earlier you mentioned um, working at APT Associates and uh, how that came about through kind of well-timed discussions. Can you share with us what your favorite part of your job there is? Yeah, sure. Um, definitely the people. We have a really strong team. Um, there are people with really strong methodological expertise, people with content expertise, people with really strong met project management skills, um, and all dedicated to this mission of improving the quality of life and economic well-being for people worldwide. Um, we do work with policymakers and practitioners to identify and enhance and develop programs that support children, youth, and families. So some of my work is aimed at putting the results of that research into practice. APT contributes to several different evidence clearinghouses that compile research findings and disseminate summaries of evidence in formats that are accessible to policymakers and practitioners. So that is a really fun part of the work. And then I also work on a project evaluating program. Um, and our program evaluation work is really with an eye towards how to improve implementation to better serve the recipients. So that could be in education, it's in housing, in healthcare, and other fields. Um, so just a really a shared commitment to making social service programs work more effectively to maximize social impact. So that has been a really good fit to my interest. Um, okay, so Carrie, transitioning here, um, we conclude our episodes with uh, something we call overrated and underrated. And uh, Ryan and I will uh, name a few things, and we're interested in uh, your thoughts on whether they are overrated or underrated. And if you wish, you can sort of uh, choose to pass or to... Uh, answer in, in some other way um, related to your, your rating of it. So I'll, I'll start with um, Maryland as the first item. Oh, coming in with a hard one. Or d underrated. <laughs> what is it again? Uh, the state of Maryland. Oh, the state of Maryland. Is it overrated or underrated? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's not even on people's radar so much. <laughs> so I guess I'm going to go with underrated because... <laughs> Um, I, I grew up in New Jersey and I feel like I was never particularly compelled to come visit Maryland. And now I've been living here for over 15 years and it's lovely. It's got, you know, it's got great parks, um, great people, great access to DC and Baltimore. Um, yeah, it has everything. It has urban areas. It's got really nice rural areas and everything in between. Lots of water. Uh Tons of water. I think we have it. I think we have more shoreline than anywhere else. Maybe. I not, oh, I didn't know that. That's yeah. pretty cool. Hmm. Fascinating. Um, quick follow up. I, I feel obliged to ask New Jersey, and then. <laughs> 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 yes. 
Uh, <laughs> I would have, well, people either love or hate New Jersey, mm. right? So I feel like, you know, um, if you love it, you're probably overrating it. And if you hate it, you're probably underrating it. <laughs> good answer. That's a good answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have great musicians. Um, well, we have great pizza and great bagels. And I will say the pizza in Maryland, not so great. Mm. <laughs> What is it? Is it like, uh, is it the dough or is it like something you can point, point to in particular that just like is, is it not, not, not me, not making the cut. Yeah. I, uh, I think the dough, I think like the thinness of the crust. Yeah. I would, I would imagine that outside of, outside of the New York regional area, it's too thick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I'll take the next one here. I'm very, very much looking forward to your, to your response to this one. Overrated or underrated? Twitter. Oh, yeah. Um, I think it's underrated by its haters. Uh, <laughs> 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 that sounds a lot like my New Jersey answer. So maybe I'm just like waffling on everything tonight. But I think it's all about how you create the experience, right? Like you have a lot of control there. You can follow the people that you think are have meaningful thing to contribute you can block people who you think don't right and and so i think you can really shape your experience to be what you want it to be you can participate as much or as little as you want and i think it's that's probably why sometimes people don't appreciate it so much because if you're a complete newbie to it like you're not necessarily interacting with people yet and and getting as much benefit out of it as you could i find it a really fun way to sort of stay in touch with people because you know ryan like we the data fellows are all across the country yeah. and I'm not going to see those people on a regular basis ever. So yeah. <laughs> it's nice to be able to kind of hear what they're up to and, and see what they're interested in. I use it largely to like share articles and hear what other people are reading and what kind of keep in touch with what teachers are thinking about these days, that kind of thing. I find it really great for that too. You know, and I've said this before on other conversations that you are one of my favorite Twitter follows uh i mean the stuff that you share on there between quotes and articles and opinions and you know policy related things um i use that information a lot to develop my own opinions and to like into and to share with people who are who are who are studying or have questions about the topics that you write about so yeah definitely uh i i think i think your use of twitter is really productive and entertaining and, and, and really good. So I, I suspected you were going to say underrated, but I was very curious. Yeah. 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 I think it's all about like kind of figuring out what, what can it do for you? And like, for me, it's like a really interesting way to sort of think about connecting research and practice mm -hmm. and those communities yeah. getting to, to learn from one another a little bit more. Okay. So we've got one more here. I'm going to, I'm going to kick it over to Josh overrated or underrated. What is it, Josh? School board meetings. Uh, <laughs> good one maybe overrated in the way that they are they tend to currently occur right and so I think about what Jonathan Collins has been writing about like these deliberative structures and I think most school board meetings are not that um I think there's an opportunity there <laughs> For, for us to think about how do we structure these in ways that they're more interactive and engaging and, and give people opportunity to really kind of hold their elected officials accountable and get people to answer questions about 
the school district that um, they feel like they're, if they feel like they're not being informed, like in what way are they not being informed and what information do they need and how might that look at the next school board meeting? Um, I don't think they currently operate that way, but they, there's always hope. Thanks, Kara. A great, a great note to end on. Um, and I, I think your work that we have discussed today um, highlights the importance of thinking about democratic processes, who they're serving, who they're not, how we can make them better. I really enjoyed kind of being reminded of those things. You know, my takeaway here is if if we're going to do this and we're going to do it right, I think we need to embrace the messiness. And, we'll, you know, we got to just like that. We just got to wait in there and like and figure it out. It is uh, I really love the way you acknowledge the complexity of this and try to give us some tools to make sense of it, because it is it's tough, you know, which is, uh, you know, which is probably why we, we, we need to get in there and, and do it. So thank you for writing this. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed the questions. Where can people find your work online? Oh, so um, the Educational Researcher essay is on their website, on the journal article website, and um, I can share those links with you as well. Thank you. Great. Well, Dr. Kara Jackson, thank you so much. I would love to have you. We would love to have you back on the show again, um, maybe for your next article. I don't know if there's, you've got something in the works, but uh, when we, if and when something does come out, we are in there and ready to like talk about it. That sounds great. Thank you. Bye, Kara. Bye, Josh. Bye. Bye, all.